Waldy and Bendy. Hello and welcome again to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. Although they could and did put us on hold for a while. But yes, it's another lockdown, so we're back. And I'm still Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, still known to my intimate friends such as you as Waldy. And I'm joined once again by a man they say is poised to become the next king of Scotland. His blood is bluer than the sky in a Titian poesy. And as we found out in the last season of this podcast, he's related to pretty much everyone who's ever owned an important picture in Britain. He's an art dealer. He's a historian. He's a TV giant. He is Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, Baron of the Borders. How's it going up there in Scotland, Bendy? Very well, thanks, Waldy. I've really missed your bigging up of my ego, but as I always try to remind you, I'm the mere James Northcote to your Joshua Reynolds, or, or should perhaps, topicality, I'm the mere Mike Pence to your Donald Trump. <laughs> You're calling me a loser. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, never mind, I can, I can live through that. Uh, anyway, look, we have this new podcast for everyone out there, uh, and if you want to see it as well as hear it, you can go to zczfilms.com, where there's a special podcast page stuffed with useful information, and all the pictures that we'll be discussing are illustrated there. So that's zczfilms.com, the podcast page. However, if all you want to do is to hear a voice as sweet as honey, as melodious as a Mozart cantata, then just stay here and enjoy Bendy who's been pretty busy since the last lockdown, haven't you, Bendy? So tell us about your adventures. Well, my adventures, gosh, it's all gone so quickly, hasn't it? It seems now that we enter the second lockdown, it seems like that moment where we were allowed out has sort of vanished like a mirage. Um, I didn't do a great deal, to be honest. I only went on one little trip south. We decided to restart a production of a series to make for the BBC called Britain's Lost Masterpieces. And we had a two-day film shoot, and I went to the National Gallery to, to nose around to get my art fix. Somewhere along the way, I managed to catch the, the cursed COVID. I, I didn't have it too badly, so I, I know I won't get much sympathy from you anyway, Waldi, but no sympathy, please. <laughs> and uh, the only lasting effect I seem to have suffered is um, what they're calling the brain fog. So there's quite a lot of standing in front of the fridge and wondering quite what I'm supposed to be getting out. So I'm slightly nervous because this is my sort of first foray back into, you know, doing anything uh, for the outside world to hear. And if I get my words muddled up or, or lose my train of thought or spoonerisms is my thing, actually, I started doing spoonerisms. So we mustn't talk about the Kent countryside. Um, <laughs> and poor Thea, who's, who helped stitch this thing together for us. I'm afraid I might put you through the ringer this go, but um, it's so nice to see you all again. So basically no change, Bendy. Spoonerisms, cloudy fog, standing in front of the fridge, just like the last time we had the podcast. Just the same old vacant me. And what about you? What have you been up to? Well, I've actually, I'm not you. I have to work for a living. Um, and so I've been, I've been out on the exhibition trail. Um, I've been to see quite a few exhibitions, you know, uh, about 10 shows I think I've reviewed in the, in the, uh, in the period between. Um, and it's been rather exciting, but also rather strange. I mean, I'd like to say that going around great art galleries and museums uh, during the uh, inter-lockdown period um, was exactly the same as before, but of course it isn't. It's very different. It is strange how not having other people about makes a difference. And I, and I speak as someone who's 
quite used to going to exhibitions and, and galleries on my own. Um, that's one of the great privileges of being uh, an art critic and being in the press. You get to see these shows on your own. But there's a sort of weird difference between going on your own in a normal situation and going on your own in this situation where COVID is standing behind you, staring over your shoulder as, as you look at every picture. And it's weirdly unsettling. I've, I actually, for some strange reason, found it harder to involve myself in the art. It was as, as if part of my brain was always thinking, have I got my mask on? You know, am I social distancing? Mm. Although, so on, one, on the one hand, I think it's a fabulous time to, or it was a fabulous time to go and see things. I mean, the National Gallery, when it's just you and a couple of attendants, it is a glorious experience, but it, it just felt wrong. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Before I went to the National Gallery, I was really looking forward to seeing art, you know, in quiet, without all the school groups and without all the tour guides. I thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. But I absolutely agree with you, because as soon as I got there, the, I found the hush very unsettling. I found the lack of people unsettling. It wasn't at all what I was used to. It felt quite alien. And every, this was before I, I knew I had the COVID, but every cough in the gallery echoed throughout and sort of made me recoil in... <laughs> in anxiety and i found it very hard to tune into the paintings and i i miss the hubbub i miss the noise of appreciation that you get from a crowd which is actually for me i realize now a part of the, the gallery experience i mean i always thought that the ideal to aspire to for going around the national gallery was was to be a trustee because when you if you ever become a trustee which i'm, I'm sure you will do well one day they give you what's called freedom in the gallery and you can rock up anytime you like you know if you, you can go on christmas day or you can go at 2 a.m in the morning or actually, you used to be able to. Now you have to give 24 hours notice because apparently um, Lucian Freud used to uh, abuse this when he took uh, lady friends around late at night. Anyway, I used to aspire to that because I thought, just imagine going around the National Gallery on your own, in the quiet. But but now I've realised I miss the crowds. I miss I miss sharing all the appreciation, even though it's unspoken with strangers. I miss I miss that sort of collegiate, that that joyful interaction between me and the art and lots of other people feeling the same things I do. Mm. It's it's as if art needs humanity to complete itself, doesn't it? It's that it's that part of the equation that's gone, isn't it? It's that sense of of, of the artist speaking across the ages to whoever's looking at it now. So it's that sense of real communication. But hang on, what's this about Lucian Freud? Uh, you skipped past that, but that sounded interesting. What what did he get up to then when he was <laughs> rocking around the National Gallery with people? Well, perhaps I've, I've obviously been indiscreet and broken confidence, but I, but I heard that they changed the rules for trustees in the National Gallery. You used to literally be able to rock up and, and press the button at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, and they would have to let you in. You could go around, they'd put all the lights on for you. Um, but the, the new rule is now you have to give uh, 24 hours or some notice to say they're going to do that, because I was told the reason was that Lucian Freud used to turn up, um, perhaps having had some uh, liquid refreshment and perhaps with a a new and impressionable young art lover with him. And, and uh, <laughs> who knows what they would see on the security cameras. Yeah, well, dear me. Do you know, when I, when I was at Channel 4, which is way, way back, I once commissioned um, a, a programme that uh, I, I regret commissioning now. It was called Do You Come Here Often? 
And it was about <laughs> this thing that was happening at the time, which was there's lots of reports in newspapers that people were getting off with each other in art galleries. That, 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 that if you're trying to find a partner, you know, a like-minded partner in the in the days before, you know, these sort of internet <laughs> sites and um, and all that, you know, you, you would go to an art gallery. And um, what I remember, I mean, it was it was quite shocking actually how much of it went on. And you know, in the Victorian Albert Museum, there's this giant plaster cast of Trajan's column. I mean, it's a yes. fantastic thing. I don't have you seen it? It's in the in the plaster cast room, and, and it's it's room sized and giant. It's so big they have to cut it in half to be able to fit mm. both bits in. That's how mm. tall it is. But the bottom bit has this chamber inside it. It was a sort of secret room. It was big enough to have a, a secret room. And on this program we did, I mean, there were all sorts of people who popped up to boast about, you know, having done terrible things in there. It, it was quite shocking. I mean, I could never look at Trajan's column again. And of course, and the fact that it was Trajan's column, this massive, great Roman penis standing up in the middle of Rome, you know, made it all even more shocking. So, uh, yes, this rather regrettable, smutty, and indeed probably childish program that we ended up uh, making on the subject. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, I think the thing is that in, on a serious level, so much art is about the real things, the things that really matter in life. And that, that is desire, and that is love, um, and, and that is, you know, humanity, and that is the soul, and all those kind of things. And so when you go into an art gallery, it's like opening a door, isn't it, to, to the deep stuff inside us. Um, and almost inevitably, sometimes that stuff sort of washes around in mucky ways, doesn't it, Bendor? Yes, although uh, I'm slightly sad to hear about your, your programme and, and all this talk of mucky ways in art gallery, because, you know, not many people have been to an art gallery as much as I have. And I've never had so much as a, a wink or a smirk from across the other side of a gallery. So <laughs> I've obviously been doing it wrong all these years. Well, that's astonishing because a handsome young chap like you, with, with your background and, and you know and, and your royal blue blood, you know, I'm, I'm surprised. So anyway, we've got this new world ahead of us, Bendy, right? Um, where we can't actually go out anywhere. So all we can do is stay at home and imagine things, and that's where you and me come in with any luck. Um, and to help us do that, we've got a new section in the podcast where uh, we're going to celebrate and investigate all those artists who are currently playing big in the ether. That's the ones that everyone is talking about. Ooh, who's, who's that, that artist? artist? Yes, it's Who's That Artist, where we zoom in on the artists currently making big waves in the art world. And this week, well, we had to do it, didn't we, Bendor? We had to look at Artemisia Gentileschi. God knows everyone else has had a go at looking at her, haven't they? Artemisia, what do you think, Bendor? Well, this was the one exhibition I, I really would have um, risked everything to go and see. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't on when I went down to National Gallery, um, and I'm so upset to have missed it. Um, and I'm also a little bit upset that there's no there's no virtual tour of the National Gallery's exhibition um, online. So it feels so frustrating because everybody's been talking about Artemisia uh, for months and months now, as this exhibition at the National Gallery's been on and off and it's on and now it's closed again and, and people like me still can't see it we still can't go around even virtually and look at the paintings and i, I find that quite frustrating so um you have been to see it haven't you I'm, I'm looking forward to to what you thought of the show yeah well not only have i been to see it but bendor you have just driven a stake through my heart as violently as artemisia sometimes shows people driving stakes through through men's heads 
you have not seen the Artemisia Gentileschi tour that I did for the Sunday Times website, where you can go and see the show and see all the pictures in it. I do not believe that you haven't caught up with that. Oh, no, I, I missed that well done. I'm really sorry. I didn't know. But um... Well, it's, it's still up there and it's going to go up on YouTube. Um, and what you will see is a remarkable exhibition. I mean, I know everybody's been talking about it and I do think it is about time. I mean, you know, the other day it was the main topic on Start the Week on Radio 4 and there were four women talking about it and I think it is time for two middle-aged blokes to have a go as well because God knows we're the lost voice in all this. Um, and that, that's going to make me popular in certain sections of, uh, of the listenership, I'm sure. But it, it is, I think it is interesting to have a... a, a a moment of masculine observation of this, a masculine perspective. Um, because we, I guess as, as blokes, you know, we, we will look for slightly different things. And, and I, I when, the first thing I have to say about this show is that when I went in, what really bowled me over was how talented she was, how early. In other words, the first picture you see is this famous Susanna and the Elders, where, where uh, this story of Susanna, where she's being spied on by these old blokes, these perverts who, who look at her and, and try and force her into having sex with them. Um, and it's a notorious picture. And of course, the sexual politics of it are obvious. But what's amazing is how incredibly well painted it is, given that Artemisia was probably 16 or perhaps 17, early 17, when she painted it. Now, this makes her a genuine prodigy. I mean, people go on about Picasso being good uh, at the age of 15 and 16 when he painted his charity picture or science and charity. Well, this is every bit as able um, as that. And I can't actually think of many or perhaps even any artists who were as good as this, as young as this, at the age of 16, to be able to paint Susanna and the Elders is beyond male and female. It's just incredibly good and really impressive. And that's a feeling that continues through the show. You know, I mean, if I can, as a middle-aged bloke, add anything to the perspective on Artemisia, it is that to see her only as a, a feminist artist, an artist wreaking her revenge on, on blokes because of her past, is, is to diminish her. I mean, she is so good in so many ways, in such different parts of the show. But it, it genuinely surprised me. Um, and that would be my take on it all, really, is, is just how impressive she is. And, you know, when you're filming, you'll know this, Bendor, better than most people. When you're filming art, you do get to see it with a certain sort of closeness and a precision that perhaps we can miss very easily if we're just walking through a show. But filming, in particular, the later work here, because the show basically has sort of two chunks. There's the really early work, which is where all the famous paintings are, the, the beheadings of the blokes, you know, Judith beheading Holofernes. And there's wonderful self-portraits where she's adopting the identity of various martyrs, St. Catherine and, and uh, probably St. Cecilia playing an instrument. So these sort of bits of feminine identification, which are pioneering and brilliant. I mean, you cannot look at someone like Cindy Sherman today or, or Frida Kahlo in the 1940s and 50s, or, or Tracy Emin even, you know, these artists who, who, who play this role of, of tinkering with their identity. You know, Artemisia was the first one to do that, and that's what the beginning of the show dwells on. But the second part of the show is often thought of as a bit of a descent for her, because you remember she had this long career where she went all, all over the place, and she ended up in Naples, and spent a, the last two-thirds of her career, really, painting these big churchy um, religious pictures which you know have been walked past a lot you know and, and people have tended to sort of not rate them very highly but when I started filming them god they're good 
I mean, there's a brilliant Lot and his daughters there, that fabulous story of Lot and his daughters where um, the, the wife turns around and is turned into a pillar of salt. So in order to keep the, the family race going, um, Lot's daughters have to ply him with drink and, and give themselves to him, you know, very strange, creepy subject matter. Um, but the painting is amazing. And these big, powerful compositions at the end of the show, big black paintings, which are actually quite hard to film because black's very difficult. It shows a lot of glare, you know. They grew on me so much. And so, you know, I'll, I'll shut up there, but basically, what a good artist and how early on she was good and how consistently she was interesting. It would be my take on it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you're a fan. One of the reasons I really wanted to see the show was because she's quite a varied artist, isn't she? She's In terms of her technique, she... The the first picture you mentioned, the Susanna and the Elders, painted when she was 16 or 17. When I first saw that, I thought, oh, that's by Orazio. That's, that's an Orazio Gentileschi. It's by her dad, because it, it mimics his style so uh, amazingly. Um, of course, it's signed by her. It's it's definitely by her. But, but the, the fascinating thing is that Orazio, you, you may think that she was just painting like her dad because her dad taught her and she'd been suffused in everything that he did. But Actually, he wasn't that keen for her to become a painter. He was always trying to shove her off into a convent, wasn't he, at the beginning? So there is that that prodigy who just was absolutely determined to go for it and, and learn to paint because that's what she wanted to do. But then throughout her career, she does change her style a lot, doesn't she? For, for, depending partly where she goes, Rome, Florence, even, even London, then eventually Naples. In a way, I think that has slightly hindered our understanding of her, her urban art history because... Sometimes when you get artists who are quite chameleon-like, it's difficult to get a, a connoisseurial handle on what they what they produce. And, and so many of her works have gone sort of undiscovered because of that. So that's one of the things I was I was looking forward to seeing. So and I'm glad to hear your view that that level of quality was consistent throughout her, her mm. career. Would you say that? But you're right about the, the change. She, she does change. Um, she, and at various parts of the show, she seems to be a different person. And it's almost signposted by this topic of Susanna and the Elders, mm. which um, there's, I think, three different versions of the same image or same, the same storyline in the, in the show. And one's from the very beginning, the one we talked about, where it's very clearly um, a, a painting in which a feminine mind is kind of recoiling at the idea of these old blokes leching over the nude. And then halfway through, there's another version of it, which is almost Rubensian in its sort of pleasure in the, the female body. And there's just much less sense of the woman being threatened by the blokes. I mean, obviously, it, the storyline is the same, but the yes. picture itself doesn't go out of its way to emphasize it. Yes. And then right at the very end, one of her last pictures, there's a, there's a final Susanna and the Elders where all of that's gone, really. And it it's a kind of almost a sort of classical look at a, a naked woman and these elders around her uh, with all the tension gone. And, and the subject matter could be sort of anything from the classical world. It stopped being this very pent up idea of, of a feminine presence and a feminine revenge. What's interesting about the, the very first example of Suzanne and the Elders is that only one of them is an elder. That, so the painting when she paints when she's 16 or 17, the, you know, the, the breakthrough, the first one, one of the perverts is a young bloke. And it's often important to realise that she painted that the year before the, the, the tragedy of her rape and, and the trial and everything. So it's almost a, it's a terrible precursor of what she sort of knew was at the risk of a young woman in her position faced in that world. Um, and it's, it's tragic that it kind of, it, it came to pass. Um, but 
I remember listening. It's not on um, the iPlayer anymore, but there was a fascinating interview, and I don't know if you heard it at the time the exhibition finally went on, with Jermaine Greer on the Today programme. Did you catch that? No, I missed that. Sorry, I'd like to have heard that. Her point was that, you know, it's it's fantastic that uh, Artemisia is finally being sort of um, em- embraced in a in such a wide way, but that uh, we shouldn't just see her as a, a feminine artist doing these subjects because that's what she wanted to strike a, you know, uh, um, a victory for women. Her Jermaine Greer's point was that um, it's still a tragedy that Artemisia was forced to, I think the word she used was cannibalize, to cannibalize the terrible experiences that she'd gone through as a woman in order to have to keep her career going as an artist. So the, the point was that she becomes known for painting these graphic images that, that relate to her own uh, experience. And so the men out there, the, the, the male patrons who commission and pay for these things, kind of target her and say, give us more of that. And I'm interested to get your sense of going through the exhibition as to whether we still focus slightly too much on that element of her life. Is Are we in a way perpetuating the injustice by saying, <laughs> you know, look at all this terrible, um, these pictures that relate to her rape and, and, the, and the, and I gather that the document that is there in the exhibition, the, 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 the record of her um, testimony in the trial. trial. Uh, but, but do you think the exhibition then kind of breathes away from that by showing a lot of other works that, that aren't well, I think, her personal listen, experience? Bender, one thing I know for sure is that in art, you see what you want to see. And, and everybody looking at Artemisia at the moment, because of the way we are in the world and, and because of the gender politics that, that are flooding around us, is, is going to focus on the, the aspect of her. And, and rightly so, I think. I mean, it is, there's no argument whatsoever that what she brought to art was a new feminine voice, was a, a, an insight from a position where no artist had express themselves before i mean there have been no women artists doing that so she was the first and, and probably the greatest to, to bring this feminine perspective to things and there's no getting away from that nor should anyone try and diminish it however it is also true that just as you started out as a fiery conservative worker in the house of commons you know supporting that party and now you've turned into the opposite of it a much gentler presence and no longer the fiery teenager you were so her art kind of just changes it goes through the it goes through the ages as as all artists work does it slows down a bit it gets less fiery it becomes about something else and what i don't think is right is that we should see that as a taking away a, a, a stealing of artemisia um, of her anger, you know, making her more placid or, or the patriarchy putting her down, although the patriarchy definitely did put her down. I think what it also is, is just just, an, just a kind of a relaxation of her emotional anger. You know, it, the, the show is becomes more about her as an artist and slightly less about her as, as an artist who is a fiery woman. So that definitely happens. And I, and I mean, the curators want us to notice that because they put all this stuff, this information in, in the captions and the catalog. I mean, for example, Artemisia used to play on this idea of, of her rape. Not play is the wrong word. She used to make use of it to, to make herself stand out on the shelf of Baroque art. You know, she, she used it and it was used as something that, that made her stand out. People would turn to her because she was notorious because of that. And although that is tragic on all sorts of human levels, it was also a way of kind of finding, elbowing out some room for herself. And there's a sense here of, of not of a career that's always tragic, although it's always difficult because 
because she was a, a woman, certainly, but also because she was a, an itinerant artist who had to go everywhere where the work was. There's a, there's a sense here of of her doing what was necessary at the time, and definitely of, of the fire sort of dampening a bit, but not the brilliance. The brilliance doesn't dampen, I don't think. Yes, and one of the things I find so exciting about Artemis is there's so much more to find about her. There are so many more works out there that we're waiting to discover. I mean, I was reading the other day a text by a contemporary verse called Filippo Baldinucci, who talks a lot about her painting just still lives and lots and lots of portraits, even portraits painted when she came to England. Um, so just imagine that somewhere out there, there's a, on, the, on the walls of a country house in England, there's a portrait of, of a Van Dyke looking fellow from the court of Charles I, who everybody thought, no, it's not by Van Dyke, it's not by William Dobson. Who is it by? No idea it'll be by Artemisia Gentileschi. And that's so exciting. And and perhaps as we get a fuller idea of what she painted, I think at the moment we've only known there's about 50 certainly known paintings. Well, there must be loads more. And perhaps as our idea of what she painted grows, we might see her less as a great female artist and just a great artist. Because ultimately, it's going to take time, this process of overturning the sort of the maleification of the canon, which grew out of the, the 19th century and the 20th century's view of, of, of art history as shaped by old white blokes like us. And ultimately, I suppose we're hoping to get to a point where an artist's gender just doesn't matter at all, aren't we? Of course. It's interesting, though, isn't it, how she was lost down the back of the sofa for so long. Um, again, it's, it's, it's understood today, perhaps, misunderstood even, as... as as something that, that was due to her femininity, you know, that women artists were forgotten deliberately almost. But that wasn't quite the reason, was it, Bendor? Well, I think a part of it is, is the reason, um, certainly in more modern times. What's so interesting is the fate of one of her most significant paintings when she came to England in about 1638 to help her dad, uh, who'd been commissioned to paint the ceiling of the Queen's house in Greenwich. And there was this amazing picture an allegory of peace, lots and lots of feminine figures because it was all uh, to do with the court of Henrietta Maria. And it was, uh, there was a little bit of a, a feminist moment going on there, even in early Stuart uh, Britain. And then in about the 1800s, when really nobody cared about this, this painting or indeed uh, knew who Artemisia Gentileschi was in England, um, they decided to chop it out and put it in the ceiling of Marlborough House, which is um, on the Mound in London. And in the process of chopping it out and squeezing it into a smaller spot, they absolutely butchered this picture. And it's very sad if you, you look it up online now, it's in the Royal Collection. And in a way, it was the, the female counterbalance to Rubens's great ceiling commission by Charles I in the Banqueting House. The, this was the, the Henrietta Maria's uh, commissioning of the Gentileschi's and Artemisia in the Queen's House. And it's a bit of a tragedy uh, that it's been completely forgotten and that so few people can see it today. Uh, and that just represents, I think, how her how her star fell, mainly through neglect. Have you seen it, uh, Bendor, the Marlborough House ceiling? No, only from photos. I've tried, you know, and I've tried filming it a couple of times, but they, they won't let you in. It was weird. Uh, I think it's only opened briefly in September or something, Marlborough House, open to the public. Um, it's one of the things I'd so like to see. I mean, you know, isn't that amazing? Artemisia Gentileschi and Orazio Gentileschi did a huge, important political ceiling in England about Charles I and the English Civil War, and sort of no one knows about it and hardly anyone gets to see it. That is so interesting, but also, oh, I don't know, it's annoying, isn't it? I feel a campaign coming on, Weldy. <laughs> yes, let's see more Artemisia. Anyway, listen, we could go talk about her forever, and in your case, I know you'd like to, but uh, I think we need to move on, Bendy, um, because we have 
a section of the program coming up that I know uh, is always good fun for us, but I also know that you're going to come up with some one of your belting surprises, and that is the section where you and I get to choose the picture we would like to have hanging on our wall during the lockdown. On the wall. Yes, it's on the wall where Bendy and I stick our hand into this great big treasure chest of art and pluck out the thing we'd most like to have if we could whilst we're sitting here hold up in our houses during the isolation period. So Bendo, what have you got for us in your choice of Museum Without Walls? I've got a, an enormous landscape which belongs to Glasgow Museums. Uh, it's about two and a half metres wide and a metre and a half high. It's by a Scottish artist called James Morrison. He was born in Glasgow in the 1930s. Uh, the subject is called uh, Approaching Storm Turtle Lake. Uh, now, Turtle Lake is in Wisconsin, which is in the news at the moment, um, but I haven't chosen it for that reason. I've chosen it because it's a perfect lockdown-looking painting. Uh, it's a vast expanse of nothingness except water and weather. It is, as the title says, is a storm approaching uh, this very flat landscape, and all, all you can see in the distance is this thick black line for the horizon, and above it, a turbulent clouds approaching and beneath it the water which is flat calm there's no boats and no people here uh, and it's that it's that dramatic moment when you get the weather turning in nature when you feel like the landscape is is waking up and anticipating something dramatic about to happen um, and I like Morrison's work because he he paints them quite large they're very in your face there's no people in them there's there's no stuffage as they say and that appeals to, to the recluse in me and to the person who, who loves to go outside and just be uh, alone and kind of, uh, you know, embrace the emptiness and the beauty of nature. And, and Morrison really, uh, that's, what, that's what he tried to capture in his pictures. He's an artist that very, very few people have heard of, but actually, I think he's one of uh, the greatest British artists of the 20th century, principally because he, he advanced the method of painting in oil, which after hundreds and hundreds of years, if you think about it, is quite a difficult uh, achievement. He developed this this new way of painting landscape in oil, and if you if you were to Google this picture and and look at it, uh, or some of his other landscapes online, there's lots and lots of them to see. You'll see exactly what I mean. He developed a, a way of painting in oil which was very thin, glazy. It's almost like a watercolor, and that allows him to paint very quickly. And he always did his paintings like this outside on the spot, and that allowed him to to capture those those amazing moments of of nature and weather changing. Uh, sometimes if you look at his pictures closely in the flesh, and I'm, I'm lucky enough to have one or two myself, you will actually see the spots of rain that have fallen on the, on the canvas or the panel as he's painted them. And sometimes they've got little dead flies in them because he paints so quickly. He's a really mesmerizing artist. Very sadly, he died just a, a few months ago. Um, and I had the privilege of, of meeting him. He's a, a very nice, unassuming artistic genius. Good Lord, Bendy. So um, I can't say I've Look, I've never heard of him, I'll be honest with you. Never heard of him. Never seen his art before. I'll have to come around to your place and look at it more closely. I, I know what you mean about that wonderful feeling I'm sure we all enjoy of standing on the side of a lake or a sea and staring out at the horizon and there's nothing there but you and it. And you kind of measure yourself against the vastness, which is what's going on here. It's something that quite a lot of artists have have tried to record though isn't it i mean um, there are some turner paintings i can think of that are, that are like that 
Um, there's a Japanese photographer called Sugimoto who did these fantastic views of the sea where basically all you see is the sea, you know, um, and, and and they have that feeling about them. I don't know this guy, so I can't comment on, on it. I mean, basically, it's, it's essentially, it's taken a ruler to a canvas, put a line across at two thirds, which is where the horizon is. Below is the sea, above is the, is the clouds, and the clouds are, are sort of doomy and gray. Um, so it's got the great simplicity to it. I totally believe you that when you say that you need to sort of look at them carefully in reality to see all these details of the, the water splashing on the surface or whatever, it's got a striking minimalist pictorial simplicity is the word, isn't it? Um, I'm glad it chimes with your with your with your with your character bendor with with your sense of isolation um you'll you'll enjoy it on your wall I'm not sure I would rush to have it on mine um but uh, but 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 there you go it's interesting to see someone whose work I don't know at all um I always like to remember the story when I'm grappling with an art historical mystery one of the times I met him was at a lunch and there were various members of his family there and he started his career in Glasgow, painting um, fantastic buildings of, of tenements and, and the squalor of, of Glasgow comes through very powerfully. And then suddenly he moved to the Scottish countryside, to Angus, which he, he painted uh, endlessly for the rest of his life. And it's often, he's, the way he's written up in the sort of um, some of the, the art books up here in Scotland is that this was a, a moment of yearning for him to, uh, to escape and to connect with nature, which he'd always wanted to paint. And one of the members of his family, um, as we were discussing this at lunch, uh, leant over to me and said, do you know, actually, the real reason he left Glasgow was because he wanted to get away from his mother. And <laughs> that just exposed to me the, the limitations of so much of art history. When we casting back for centuries, we struggle to find, you know, to adduce the reasons that various artists painted things or didn't paint things. And so often there's a, a really banal human reason that we just have no <laughs> conception of, of ever realising. Well, I will look out for him in the future and, and I will always remember his mother. Um, <laughs> I've gone for something a bit different. I, I, see, one of the things I do on Twitter is I, I have this thing where I, where I celebrate artists' birthdays. So if it's your birthday and you're a famous artist, I, I tend to write about you on that day. Um, and I've been doing this for a few years and um, I've done all the famous artists, really. I've kind of done all the people that everybody's heard of, you know, the Andy Warhols, the Francis Bacons. And I've got to the sort of the third layer on the grid, you know, where you, where you pick out people that not many people have heard of. Um, and it so happens that on the day that we're recording this particular podcast, Bendel, which is the 5th of November, um, it's the birthday of Kuzma Petrov Vodkin, that well-known Russian painter who I come to enjoy enormously, and who I, you know, it's rather spookily, I didn't actually realise it was his birthday. It was a coincidence that I wanted to show a fantastic portrait by Kuzma Petrov Vodkin of Anna Akhmatova, mm -hmm. and it turns out it was his birthday at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, who is Anna Akhmatova? Well, you know, we all know, she was this wonderful Russian poet, early 20th century, who was the kind of Artemisia Gentileschi of early Russian poetry in that she brought a new voice to Russian poetry, the voice of the woman, which hadn't been heard much. Her work is absolutely fabulous. Most of our listeners will know it, of course. And she had this interesting life where she began as a sort of member of the, the middle classes and then the revolution happened and she joined in with its spirit whilst also always making or writing poetry that, that really brought a woman's voice to things. Um, and then 
when when the Russian Revolution changed sides and it all became very repressive, she was very much a victim of the Stalinist era. And and and, and, and although she herself was never sent to the gulags, her husband was, her son was, and she was put into this sort of cold freeze where the Russian society ignored her for, for 40 years. But, and, and this is so brave and so wonderful, she stayed in Soviet Russia um, and, and didn't flee, although she could have done, and, and continued to write these amazing verses, which, which then became very political and all about the, the Russian state. And then in, in the 60s, she got the Nobel Prize finally. You know, she was accepted and, 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 and welcomed by the poetry world. But this portrait of her by this obscure, or for me obscure, Russian artist is so wonderful. Um, and it's a sort of post-Cubist portrait. You know, there's, a, there's that sort of soft style where the angularity of Cubism meets realism. And, and so the picture looks exactly as she would have looked, but it's got that sort of sense of, of sort of Cezanne or, or Picasso having had a hand in its conception. It's got an angularity to it, which fits the face that, you know, she had an angular face, a kind of angular nose and angular cheekbones and an angular hairstyle. Um, and she's sort of staring at us in this beautiful direct way. And, and on her shoulder, her left shoulder, there's, there's a sort of blue ghostly muse looking down on her. So it's a haunting picture. And I saw it at the um, State Russian Museum in St. Petersburg and it stopped me in my tracks, you know, because it's this beautiful blue, bright, bright lapis lazuli blue in the background. And I thought, oh, that's great, who's that? And I, and I went up and it's, it's Anna Akhmatova by Kuzma Petrov Vodkin. And I just got blown away by the picture really. It's haunting, and her poetry is so haunting. Do you like it? Um, I enjoy seeing it. Not something I knew. I was going to ask you when when was it when was it painted? In nineteen twenty-two. Okay, because later on, she, as you say, she really um, bore the brunt of it with the Stalinist purges and brutality. I think her her first husband was executed, and then her second husband was sent off to the Gulag. And I'm always fascinated by how art and artists responds to these moments of political oppression because. Uh, Vodkin, I think I'm right in saying, was uh, much more enthusiastic about the regime. Uh, he paints a lot of uh, Soviet propaganda pictures. Uh, one of my favourites I'm looking up is called Death of the Commissar. And it, it's as you would imagine, it's some heroic uh, commissar sacrificing himself for Mother Russia during the Civil War. Whereas the subject here, obviously, we knew felt very differently. And I'm not sure if we can see within this portrait any tension there between one artist who embraced the regime and another one who absolutely didn't. Well, I think Petrov Vodkin was an interesting character because some of his art is like this, very sort of gentle and beautiful. He did some wonderful still lives. Again, when I went to the State Russian Museum in St. Petersburg, the last time I was there, there were these floaty still lives. There's a fantastic one called the Herring, which has just got this basic monumentality to it. There's a herring, there's some, I think some potatoes and a piece of bread on, on this gorgeous, pink tablecloth and it's a painting about how little food there was available to St. Petersburg in St. Petersburg during the revolution so it's actually a sort of painting about hunger and the basics but it's also incredibly beautiful and Petrov Vodkin seems to have changed as he went along and I know that the end of his career was inglorious I mean there's a painting of him of, of, of the dead Lenin in his in his in his coffin and it's just a sort of ghastly <laughs> bit of social realism <laughs> But along the way, you know, it's like that nobody is all bad if they're that as talented as he was. You know, they, they have these great moments. Yeah. Um, if you sort of put aside the propagandist stuff and just look at him, as it were, without the politics, 
I mean, he was a really interesting painter. He, he did take this sort of lessons of Cubism, modernism, turn them into something rather beautiful. His still lives are amazing. I will put a little selection of them up on this um, podcast webpage that we've got on zczfilms.com so people can see. And this portrait of, of Akhmatovar is, is, I think, I mean, it's one of the great portraits of a poet. I absolutely love it. And, and yes, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, no one is anything forever, are they? I mean, he was someone who could be great and gentle and sensitive, and he, he also became a, a, a pawn of the Stalinists. Um, she was someone who was fiercely feminist and, and, and strong and powerful, but she also became uh, someone who, if she had to, would write the odd bit of Soviet propaganda as well to keep her family safe. You know, history does terrible things to artists. I was going to read a poem by her, Bender, but you, you probably need to stop me from doing this because there's nothing worse is there than mm -hmm. someone trying to read a poem on the radio. It's always bad, isn't it? I think you should give it a go. And Is it going to make you cry? Well, no, I think it's, it's, it's to try and bring the conversation back to Artemisia a bit. Okay, so it's a poem called Lot's Wife, right? Now, in the Artemisia show, there's a painting called Lot and His Daughters. Oh. And it's the story that I think, you know, we all know that, that, that God decided to destroy Sodom because Sodom was such a terrible place. Um, but Abraham pleaded for the people. And, and so God said, okay, the righteous people can go. So Lot and his family were allowed to leave Sodom before it was destroyed. But the instruction was you can't turn back and look at the destruction. Mm -hmm. If you do turn back, you know, the, the deal is over. Yeah. So Lot, Lot is led out of Sodom and his wife can't resist turning around and looking at the destruction. She's turned into this pillar of salt. So all the men that have ever painted this picture have always done it as a sort of, oh God, women, you know, they can't bloody well do what they're told. You know, they have to look around and break the rules. Anna Akhmatova wrote this wonderful poem on this subject, which I'm going to read to you. I'm going to, I'm going to risk all the wrath of all the people that, that hate poetry on the radio. I think it's really interesting. Okay, it's called Lot's Wife. The righteous man followed God's luminous angels and hurried after them over the hill. But his wife heard an anxious voice that whispered, It isn't too late, not yet. You can still look back at the towers of the town you came from, at the street where you sang, and the room where you spun, and the empty windows of the house you cared for, and the bed where all your children were born. That's the poem, right? See, that's the feminine viewpoint, Bendy. Mm. This is Lot's wife, not as someone who's just breaking the God's rules. This is someone remembering warmly the house that she came from, mm. you know, leaving behind the, the bed where her children was born. And in the same way as Artemisia brings a viewpoint to painting that hadn't been heard before as a woman, so Anna Akhmatova brings a, a viewpoint to poetry, I feel, that hadn't been heard of before. And, and you get that feeling in this picture would be my, would be my point there. Yes, oh, I entirely agree. And beautifully read, beautiful poem. Now, there's a, there's a topic for us to discuss. How, to what extent was the role of women uh, in history dictated by the kind of crazy tales you hear in the Old Testament? We'll do that one another day, shall we? Oh, yes, I think so. Um, well, God knows we've been talking on and on and on. Bendy, it's back to the lockdown, I think, for me and you. Um, that's quite enough for, for one go. But it's good to be back on the airways. Um, and, and folks out there, we, you can always trust Wardy and Bendy to, uh, to keep talking about art when everybody else has shut up about it. So that's all from us. It's certainly goodbye from me. And I believe it's... Cheerio from me. <laughs> Waldy and Bendy.